Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for those who are tuning in. Um, my name is Cherise Burdenstelli. I am an assistant professor of Africana Studies and Political Science at Carleton College. Um, and I'll spend the next year as a visiting scholar with the Race and Capitalism Project at the University of Chicago. Um, and it is my pleasure to be here with my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sandy Blasilo, to speak about um, the ethics of Black Lives Matter, Pan-Caribbean perspectives on capitalism, imperialism, state violence, and anti-Blackness. Um, before we get started, I do want to extend um, our thanks to the University of Toronto Center for Ethics, as well as Marcus Dubber, who invited us to be here today. Um, and so I just want to give a brief, some brief remarks about the spirit of this talk. So in a 1974 interview with the Black scholar, uh, Walter Rodney talked about how the peoples of the third world are at the heart of the human condition, and that questions that are posed in the global south um, tend to not be posed in the metropolitan areas like the United States or um, Great Britain, or when they are posed, they're not posed widely or taken seriously. And so it's in the spirit of thinking about what is happening beyond our borders um, that can allow us to expand the sort of cartography of interrogation and of struggle as we think through these issues of imperialism, capitalism, and um, anti-Black racism. Um, it's also imperative to think broadly and widely, both temporally and spatially, um, because there's often a convoluted and superficial analysis that pervades mainstream US media. So it becomes necessary to look elsewhere. And this doesn't mean that we lazily apply the realities of different historical material or contextual contexts to our own situation but rather that we can think relationally and analogically and with a broader set of political and intellectual resources um, that help us to push against the obfuscations that, um, that, that can circulate in our media. And there's no better place really to look than the Caribbean where so many of the dynamics that we're speaking about today, capitalism, imperialism, racism, neocolonialism, um, coalesce, and generally with very, very dire consequences um, for the majority of the population. So that is, um, that's essentially the context in which we'll be speaking today. Great, thank you, Sharice. My name is Sandy Placido. I am an assistant professor of history at Queens College of the City University of New York. I also want to thank uh, University of Toronto Center for Ethics and Marcus for inviting us and to Sharice actually for looping me into this conversation. Um, so I want to begin by saying that today is actually the five year anniversary of the state sanctioned killing of Sandra Bland, a woman who was very vocal and outspoken about the Black Lives Matter movement, the movement whose ethics we are exploring today and whose, whose killers have not been charged or, or convicted, they are free, right? And so, you know, in this iteration of the Black, global Black freedom struggle, I just wanted to hold some space for her today and for all that she did while she was with us and with the hopes that we can achieve justice for the many people who still have not received it, right? Many black women specifically, um, such as Breonna Taylor. 
So I just want to let you all know what the structure will be. We will each begin with quotations <laughs> and we will discuss them and unpack them. And then we're going to move into case studies, case examples across the Circum Caribbean that represent manifestations of the main themes that we have advertised for all of you today, anti-Blackness, state violence, capitalism and imperialism across the Caribbean. And then we'll end it by tying it together under the umbrella of the series, which is the ethics of Black Lives Matter and thinking about the relationship between those two things, um, both within the world of scholarship and academia, but as well within the world of organizing and politics. Thank you. So, um... Sandy will start with a quote from Sonia Pierre. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I am starting. So my, um, I want to give for those who don't know, Sonia Pierre is an incredible one. One of the sort of emblematic activists of the Dominican Republic. She was a woman of Haitian descent. Her parents were Haitian sugarcane workers. She actually became radicalized at the age of 13, protesting on behalf of the sugarcane workers for improved living and working conditions. Um, she was arrested at the age of 13 for doing this work. Uh, this is very, very important because the sugar, uh, corporate sugar interests are a major reason for number one, the, the presence of Haitian workers in the Dominican Republic, but also a lot of the impunity and violence um, that we see still throughout the Dominican Republic today. So one of the very significant things that Sonia Pierre did is that she started an organization called Muda, the Movimiento de Mujeres Dominico Haitianas, and this is in 1983. So just to give you a sense uh, of the institutionalization and formalization of this work uh, goes goes far back. Um, however, you know, after years of doing this work and, and this work began, it, it was very much focused on social services and some of the direct needs of people of Haitian descent living in the Dominican Republic, which by the way, there are about 800,000 uh, people of Haitian descent in, in the DR. Um, but eventually throughout the 90s, the organization turned more to questions of social inclusion and specifically this question of legal recognition, legal recognition by the state, the regular regularization of the status of Haitian workers and people who actually were born and raised in the DR, but who have been denationalized over the decades. And I'll talk more about that. And Sonia Pierre, unfortunately, left the world at the age of 48. This was in 2011. And she had a heart attack. She had had um, multiple open heart surgeries. Um, she was subject to many attacks throughout her lifetime of activism, her and her family, her children. And so I think it's very, she was even threatened um, uh, in terms of deportation by the Dominican state. So all of that stress, as we know, is not new upon Black women activists. We have many examples, such as people such as uh, Claudia Jones, who Sharice has done incredible work on, who also died very early deaths after decades of persecution at the hands of their respective states. So this is the quote after that extended introduction, but I wanted to make sure people knew who she was. I'll read it in Spanish as well as English. No voy a descansar aunque me quede en el camino porque yo sé 
que la lucha seguirá. Algún día, tarde o temprano, el Estado tendrá que reconocer a esta ciudadana, ciudadana y ciudadano que crecen aquí apátridas, sin nacionalidad, sin un nombre, para que sean incluidas en esta sociedad dominicana. I will not rest, even if I don't make it to the end of the road, because I know that the fight will continue. Someday, sooner or later, the state will have to recognize these citizens who grow up stateless here without nationality, without a name, so that they are included in this Dominican society. And again, just creating again the connection between the state's racist repression on, uh, this was out of a conversation I had with Sharice, not only on the individual body, but also the body politic of the larger uh, community, which we see today under <laughs> the, the very racialized ways in which the pandemic is affecting communities. This is a very real and literal danger for our Black communities. And so I chose a quote from um, the prison scholar and intellectual George Jackson from his text, uh, Blood in My Eye. Um, of course, he, was, he died in prison in 1971 at the hands of this very um, police state and at the moment when the prison industrial complex starts to take off. So he wrote, quote, each of us should understand that revolution is aggressive. The manipulators of the system cannot or will not meet our legitimate demands. Eventually, this will move us all into a violent encounter with the system. These are the terminal years of capitalism, and as we move into more and more challenges to its rule, history clearly forewarns us that when the prestigious power fails, a violent episode precedes its transformation. We cannot attempt, or we can attempt to limit the scope and range of violence and revolution by mobilizing as many partisans as possible at every level of socioeconomic life. But given the hold that the ruling class has on this country and its history of violence, nothing could be more certain than civil disorders, perhaps even civil war. I don't dread either. There are no good aspects of monopoly, of monopoly capital, so no reservations need to be recognized in its destruction. Monopoly capital is the enemy. It crushes the life force of all um, of the people. It must be completely destroyed as quickly as possible, utterly, totally, ruthlessly, relentlessly destroyed. Um, and I think that this pertains uh, very much so not only to our discussion, but to this current moment. We're seeing that many of these challenges that are coming to state-sanctioned violence, to police brutality, and to demands for just basic human dignity are coming alongside demands for um, economic redistribution, for an end to the entrenched capitalist exploitation that has manifested um, in recent years and in even recent months with the redistribution of wealth upwardly. So as, so, as millions of people are um, out of jobs and as millions more are on the precipice of being evicted, right? We're on the precipice of a houseless crisis that is about to um, overcome the country. Um, the ruling elite have made billions off of this crisis, that is to say COVID-19. And so I think that George Jackson's words resonate that um, any challenge to that authority, to the authority of capital is met with repression of which police brutality is one and that it is only through um, relentlessly, right, ruthlessly attacking and um, struggling against capitalism that we can hope to have a different um, reality and a different future. So, um, so those two quotes together, I think, frame the conversation that we hope to have 
especially um, thinking about what's going on in different sites in the Caribbean. And so when we speak about the Pan-Caribbean, we're really using a framework offered by Margaret Stevens in her book, Red International and Black Caribbean, where for her, the Black Caribbean included not only um, you know, the West Indies and uh, places like Haiti and the Dominican Republic, but also Mexico and also parts of the United States. And if we really put imperialism, colonialism, um, enslavement and its legacy and neocolonialism at the center, we can see the connections between what we commonly recognize as the Caribbean and these other sites um, that also very much resonate in, in this connection. So um, I'll start with the United States. And there's so much to say about what's going on now. I don't even take notes on this. So basically, of course, we have we have the state sanctioned murders um, and the vigilante murders of people like Ahmaud Arbery and um, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Richard Brooks. And all of these situations are different, but what it amounts to is this understanding by the police and by extension, the police state that they have the monopoly on violence and force and therefore um, have impunity to, to kill at will, irrespective of what um, ir irrespective of what the, the law says, right? So that is to say, they understand that they will not be held accountable, right? And so this gives us space to really consider the ways that repression are used to manage structural lack, right? When, as economic conditions deteriorate, as more and more people become um, precariously employed or precariously housed, there is a growing need for militarism and for state-sanctioned violence. And again, the Global South gives us a lot of resources to understand this dynamic because it's happening everywhere. Um, the other thing that's happening in the United States as a consequence of uh, COVID-19 is that we see the racialized nature of not only the health, the health aspect of the crisis, but also the economic aspect of the crisis. Because essentially all COVID did was heighten the contradictions, but also reveal in stunning fashion what was already below the surface. So the reason why unemployment is so bad currently is because it was bad before. People were working two and three and four jobs for declining and stagnant wages. And once they didn't have access to those jobs, people are in dire straits, right? We're in one of the, the worst recessions since the Great Depression, or we have, we have levels of unemployment that have reached the level of the Great Depression. And so these economic conditions and the fact that people um, do not have work has lended to the strength and the durability and the longevity of the protests that we see happening. Um, the other side to that protest is the counter protest, right? We see, as George Jackson talks about, the state, the challenges to power um, induce anxiety, right? They induce a particular backlash that we're seeing from the, the you know, the the appearance of white supremacists at these protests to um, the president calling for the crushing of protesters, even peaceful protests, the sort of the, the neo red baiting of protests through this whole Antifa discourse. We see all of these things happening as more and more people begin to realize that this system is unsustainable. It has been for a long time, but COVID is making 
the condition so dire that more and more people are starting to develop a particular consciousness um, that's allowing for types of solidarity or types of um, organization that have been happening in disparate ways but are now happening in much more trenchant and much more um, much more sort of broad-based ways. So those are some of the dynamics that are happening in the United States and related to imperialism, we can see the ways that US imperialism is reaching its, as its asymptotes. And as that happens, it's turning inward. And one of the one way in which it turns inward is by crushing the very people it has long attacked, Black people, um, people with um, precarious citizenship, all sorts of other racialized people, poor people and working people. And so this is something that we need to think deeply about as we continue to demand justice, not for the people who are, who are uh, murdered by police, we, we need to be making other types of demands that will ensure economic um, and social well-being. So I'm gonna turn to talking about the Dominican Republic and a lot of what Sharice just laid out. Um, it's, it's an, you know, you see a sort of even heightened level, right? So if you think about the economic pressures, a place like the Dominican Republic has a long-standing, right? Um, presence of any economic inequality, precarity. So, right, the, the, the sites of consciousness have been happening there, but there's also equally, again, the, the state repression, but also local vigilante repression, which I'll get into. And that was another general theme that we've um, been talking a lot about, Charisse and I, that when we think about mass movements in this period, it is not just the mass movements of those working on behalf of social justice. We also see the mass movements of people on the far right who are also making demands upon the state and are actually a lot of times successful because the state wants to turn to these um, capitalist uh, processes that are not pro-human and et cetera. So yeah, this is, this is a very important dynamic that we're seeing throughout the Caribbean region as well. So again, as I mentioned, um, with Sonia Pierre's work on MUDA, one of the organization that, organizations that has continued holding up that banner of social inclusion through legal recognition is Reconocido. And I want to uh, raise up their work. Um, they are also an organization that works for the, again, the regularization of um, the status of Dominicans of Haitian descent. And I wanna highlight the work of an anthropologist named Amarilis Estrella, who recently wrote an article called Muertos Civiles, right? Civil deaths. And she argues, right? Because a lot of times if you have this conversation about legal inclusion in things such as electoral politics that might be seen under the umbrella or frame of like, oh, those are liberal demands. They're not fully, you know, like the full radical extent, right, of what's possible. But in a place like the Dominican Republic, it is essential and it is urgent and it is uh, radical and revolutionary for people, a population of 800,000 who have lived and been born in and raised, right, many of them in the Dominican Republic to have basic representation. So um, I'll get more into the 2013 ruling in a minute, but essentially what you have is people 
born and raised in the Dominican Republic who cannot vote. They, they live in communities um, where they do not have adequate representation. So um, Amarilis is talking about that from a civil perspective, but also expands upon on how Reconocido as an organization has also used that as a launching pad for more radical demands um, to address essentially the premature death of Black communities uh, more broadly within the Dominican Republic. Um, and so a lot of the discourse within the Dominican Republic that has led to the rise of these far right, ultra conservative nationalists, we can call them fascists <laughs> um, in the Dominican Republic, it actually goes back and can be traced into history. The discourse they always return to is this issue of the Haitian invasion and takeover of the Dominican Republic and they cite the historical period of 1822 to 1844 when the island was unified under Haitian rule. Now, that particular period is important because it was actually under that period that slavery was fully abolished throughout the entire island, right? And it was because of the Haitian Revolution and the Haitian leadership. And so, in fact, there were people on the Dominican side of the island that were in were pro the unification. So, even though that is used as the historical reference, um, of course, all of that is obscured by the people on the far right who use that. And um, there's great work such as the people of uh, J. Espinosa and La Galeria magazine, and also. Ann Eller, a historian that explained this entire history. Now that that anti-racist, anti, I mean, I'm sorry, not anti-racist, anti-Black <laughs> racist trajectory you see traced all the way into the 20th century with the dictatorship of someone like Trujillo, who ordered the killing of Black communities along the Haitian and Dominican border in 1937, thousands, almost 20,000. And then again, um, after the Dominican Revolution of 1960, Five, where you essentially have a US-backed uh, regime that begins right after the revolution, beginning with Balaguer, uh, up into the present, honestly, um, a far-right coalition of uh, groups that have created like united fronts within electoral politics. Um, and Amaury Rodriguez has written about that as well in Jacobin. So check all these things out. Um, but part of why I bring that up is again, to bring it up to the 2013 moment, which is again, under this um, party, the PLD, which passed this. It was actually a Supreme Court ruling, which denationalized hundreds of thousands of uh, people of Haitian descent in the Dominican Republic because it was retroactive. It essentially said that even if you had been born in the Dominican Republic, if your parents had been born in Haiti and it was going all the way back to 1929, um, and if you didn't have proper documentation, essentially sort of solidifying within the levels of the judiciary uh, a social exclusion that had been happening for way longer. Um, and even even most recently of note is that the leaders of Reconocido, the group I mentioned, um, specifically Ana Belique, who is a civil, who is a lawyer, a social justice human rights lawyer in the Dominican Republic, and Maribel Nunez, a journalist, um, they were having a solidarity protest for George Floyd, right, in this moment of global solidarity, um, which is bi-directional, multi-directional, and they were attacked by the fascists, um, the, uh, they're called Antigua Orden Dominicana, um, uh, the old Dominican, ancient Dominican order. <laughs> and they, they were being, they attacked the protesters and the Dominican police, what do they do? 
they arrest the activists, uh, Belik and, and Nunez, and not the, the, the people, the fascists who were attacking. So that just shows you some of the collusions happening that we're going to see throughout <laughs> this conversation. So, um, and lastly, just for the DR, and my other case studies will be a bit shorter. <laughs> this is just a very, there's a lot going on in the DR right now. Um, the, the, they have had recent elections, so it remains to be seen, um, but you know, we have to continue the movement. Um, and um, the PLD did get voted out. But what, what's really interesting, the main point I want to make here is that's so interesting about these patriotic forces that are trying to defend the country from the Haitian invasion. They're spending all of that time doing that. And in fact, they are supporting US and other foreign countries' imperialist actions in the country. You know, so right now, we currently have a situation in the Dominican Republic in El Sable, which is a community um, where last year, a 12-year-old was killed over land disputes. Essentially, the landowner has gone in and is trying, and, and this is all tied up with local authorities, multinational corporations, in this case, a sugar, sugar corporation. Um, and they have been, they did a pilgrimage last fall where, you know, with religious leaders who were being brutally built, the president um, who just got voted out did, has done nothing. Um, so that is an actual ongoing struggle, which um, resonates very much with the story of Mama Tingo, who uh, we, we speak a lot in the Dominican community, who was also a peasant uh, farmer who was killed over land disputes um, that were backed by the state and corporations. Um, but another huge one that I got to call out because we're here in Toronto virtually, uh, Barrett Gold, which actually is headquartered in Toronto, one of the largest gold companies, owns half of what the, the largest gold mine in the Americas is where? In the Dominican Republic, in Pueblo Viejo. And, and this own is partially owned by Barrett Golds, based in Toronto, and Newmont Corporation, which is based in Colorado. So it's owned by the US and, and Canada. And that particular mine, for the historical context, uh, has was actually the one first exploited by the Spanish in Columbus, just so you see the continuity of 528 years of imperialism. So, so in the interest of time, um, I'm going to gloss over much of what I was going to say about um, Diana, but I do want to give special thanks to um, Dr. Lisa Trotz and Percy Henson um, for the conversations that they had with me and for their writings on the situation. But Diana is so important. Diana is such an important country that doesn't get enough attention. It has the distinction of being the, actually the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, despite the fact that it's very resource rich. And this, of course, is called uh, the Dutch disease, although uh, Sir Arthur Lewis pointed it out long be uh, in Jamaica and other places in the global south long before it was attributed to the Dutch. But as we know, once, you know, the Western countries get a hold of something, they just co-opt it. So anyway, Guyana, Guyana is one of these countries that is resource rich, but has its distinction. So what's important, what's happening in Guyana right now, that's very, very important and that we should look out for is the elections. Um, so as of today, no winner has been announced in the contest between um, the People's Progressive Party on the one hand and um, a Partnership for National Unity and the Alliance for Change. So it's um, asking the AFC on the other hand, even though these elections were held on March 2nd, 2020. And there has been calls not only in Guyana, but throughout the diaspora for the election to be called um, after the recount and for, for a winner to be declared. But the other thing that is being called for is an 
the refashioning or an end to the winner take all system that is actually at the basis for this dispute, right? Because of the ways that the winner take all system um, is split along racialized lines and that often result in violence along racial lines and the overall suffering of the vast majority of the population. And one of the immediate effects of, of a winner not being declared currently is that Ghana doesn't have a budget and thus they're not able to, they have a limited ability res to respond to the health crisis and the economic crisis linked to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and so it's extremely polarized. The state is extremely polarized currently. There's a lot of mistrust on both sides. And it is a, it is a very, very bad situation. What is exacerbating the situation is the discovery of oil in 2015. And of course, ExxonMobil um, having their hands all up in it, right? And um, so as Elisa Trotz writes, um, the destruction of the seabed, otherwise known as deep sea drilling for oil, has drastically raised the stakes for this miserable election. It has also put Guyana firmly in the sights of Western powers, a community intent on making an example of Venezuela and for whom Guyana is of immense geopolitical strategic importance to a community that has never acted in the interest of the region's sovereignty, right? And to the point of um, the interest of the US, there's a, um, a political consultant in Washington, D.C. named Jose Cardenas that talks about what Washington's stakes are in Guyana's election. And he says, like, you know, the United States wants a, a, a democratic outcome. Um, they want political certainty. And of course, this idea of quote unquote democracy and political certainty has to do with protecting these oil assets because ExxonMobil is a U.S. multinational corporation. And he argues that sanctions can be imposed on any individual or on the country itself if um, a party is sworn in undemocratically, right? And so we see the catastrophic effects of sanctions in places like Syria, in places like Iran, right? That these, these, all, these sanctions always have effects on ordinary people. Um, and these sanctions are not in the good faith of the people. They're not, they're not to preserve democracy. They're to preserve the interest, the, the global capitalist interest of corporations like ExxonMobil. Um, and of course, Caradenas invokes Venezuela, right? That Guyana becomes of strategic importance vis-a-vis -vis Venezuela. That if what happens, what has happened in Venezuela happens in Guyana, then that oil will become quote unquote radioactive, right? And so ExxonMobil is watching with quote, extreme concern about the political impasse. So all of this to say that given the post-colonial situation, so much of politics is bound up in the dictates of global capital such that sovereignty has been extremely undermined. And this exacerbates the very specific internal conflicts and crises of a given locality. Because as we know, the US and Britain have been manipulating elections in Guyana since at least 1957, even back to 1953 before Ghana or Guyana even had independence, when Chetty Jagan and the PPP were elected, um, the constitution was suspended in 153 days. And then we see all of these machinations throughout the 1960s that caused untold struggle and strife. 
And that was a different context, right? Part of the U.S.'s involvement at that moment in Guyana had to do with the fact that unlike many other Caribbean countries, other than Cuba at the time, Guyana was like a left, a left leaning country. It was, and so the U.S. feared that there would be another sort of quote unquote Cuba on their hands after 1959. We're in a different moment. The interests in are different in Guyana currently, not least because neither of these parties are anti-oil, right? And so in, a mo in this neoliberal moment, it's not as if any of the, either of these parties are anti-capitalist. And so in the final analysis, voters are having to make the best of a bad situation. And so I am of the belief that Guyana's, um, that the elections in Guyana can sort of provide a precursor to what may very well happen here insofar as there could be a contested election in which the ruling party <laughs> does not want to concede power, right? Trump has already started this, um, you know, the, beating the drum of the elections are going to be corrupt and blah, 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 blah. Um, but ultimately, just like in Guyana, it's not as if any of these parties are committed to the flourishing of its population. And so um, these dynamics are exacerbated in both countries by racial tensions and the uncanny ability of both parties to manipulate, pander, and harness racial sentiment to the end of shoring up their power, which often results in violence and again, suffering for the overwhelming majority of the population. And so there's much, much more to be said um, on this situation. But again, a place like Guyana helps us help to bring the effects of racialized state violence, of imperialism, and of global capitalism into sharp relief. And actually, very relatedly, my next example, just uh, Haiti. Um, uh, if, if those of you who are aware, uh, the Haitian population has been rising up in a massive mobilization since 2018, demanding the resignation of the president, uh, Jovenel Moise. And this is specifically around a corruption issue with Petro Caribe, which is a Venezuelan oil company that provided oil to Haiti um, and said that they could defer the payments, right? But what did the government do instead of that money that they saved on the on the oil payments? Uh, they pocketed that. And it's like, I was, you know, in my research anywhere, I think some at like $2 billion and other places $4 billion worth of, um, right? So this is why the people are rising up. But again, as a continuation of what I said earlier about the Dominican Republic, you see the same types of expropriation of the and dispossession of the people from the land in Haiti. So one recent event that I just want to bring attention to, there is a, a school um, a school for the solidarity of Haitian women, the acronym is SOFA. But on June 17th, the, the, there, it's a, essentially a, in the center of the country. Um, it's a community of women that have been doing farming and trying to you know, grow healthy food for their communities and they were building a structure and armed groups came and destroyed the structure, no justice. Uh, I learned about this through various uh, political networks, um, not much media attention on it, but part of the analysis is that behind those armed groups are again, you see the same types of collusion from the state, from the police, the impunity, and even behind that, um, the interests of the state 
that wants to cater to a, a sort of monocultural model of uh, agriculture, which benefits um, corporations, right? Again, having to do with sugar and stevia based on what I read and specifically um, potential partnerships with Coca-Cola, right? So a lot of the kind of uh, usual suspects in thinking about, uh, again, 500 years of exploitation in the Caribbean because of its natural resources. Quick mm -hmm. shout out to Sally Garcia, who also has um, done a lot of uh, education for me on the Barrett Gold situation in DR, because that's what her research focuses on. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to quickly point that, you know, these Black Lives Matter protests against state-sanctioned violence are happening in countries where racialized or Black people are the heads of state. So if we look at a place like Trinidad, for example, they um, have had their own Black Lives Matter protests that are uh, in response to the recent killings, uh, extrajudicial extra killings of unarmed Black men, uh, Noel Diamond, Joel Jacobs, and Israel Clinton on Saturday, the 27th of June. But in general, this whole year, over 43 men, most of whom are Black, have been killed by the police. Um, and it's a, it's a predominantly Black police force, right? That's enacting violence upon the poor and working class peoples and communities um, that are already under resources. They're already um, disadvantaged and neglected. And of course, all of this is based on, as Sandy has been pointing out, longer histories of, of colonial legal and social structures. And so I, I wanna shout out um, Angelique Nixon, her, her article, Righteous Rage on Protests and Uprisings Against Police Violence in Trinidad, where um, I actually read up on this issue. And of course, the police tried to cover up um, the slayings, even though they were caught on video, and then also start to use this rhetoric of um, once they start, once people start protesting, the police start attacking the protest, uh, the protesters, including the assassination or the killing of Ornella Greaves, who was a pregnant woman killed by the police on June 30th. So they refer to the protesters as um, cockroaches savages and gangs, right? Which are both sort of racist and class-based um, um, labels that rationalize the killings of these protesters who are simply arguing that their lives matter, right? Um, they're simply demonstrating on behalf of their social and economic well-being. And this is not unlike, you know, the categorization of our protesters as thugs and agitators, right? And so this becomes a, irrespective of the, the color of the people who are in charge, when their power is being contested, they resort to these particular types of labels and these, these forms of demonization in order to discredit the righteous protests that are happening. Um, and as I was reading about this, I couldn't help but think about the 1970 uh, Black power revolts that were happening in Trinidad in a time of economic decline, in a time of the decline of GDP under um, Eric Williams, where ultimately um, he threatened to bring in the US, right? US, um, the US Navy to, to suppress this uprising. Uh, many people, 72 people were arrested during that protest, at least 10 people were uh, murdered, jailed, and killed. Um, Eric Williams ended up passing the Sedition Act. And so again, this is a different context, but what it conveys is that this very long history of the state defending capital against the people. 
And when people rise up based on their localized historical and material conditions, the response tends to be the same over time, right? Repression. And of course, these are largely poor Black people, dispossessed people, disempowered people who are protesting. Um, and so bringing ethics into the conversation, um, Angelique Nixon talks about righteous rage. And in this context, righteous rage can be understood as a form of ethics, right? That this, this, this rage and inability to accept the status quo can definitely be understood as an ethical, right? As an ethical commitment, as an ethical um, um, insurgency that is on behalf of black life and not any black life, right? Black life that tends to be the most dispossessed. Absolutely. And um, that has absolutely been the case in the Dominican Republic where again, we are talking just to clarify about brown and black people um, attacking. I mean, there have been lynchings of Haitian individuals in the DR like not that long ago. Um, in addition, I want to mention the attacks on people in the diaspora. So Dominicans in the diaspora who speak up against Haitian, who speak up in, in support of Haitian and Dominican solidarity or just blackness in the DR and black justice for black people in the DR also get targeted by these same people. And it, it's incredible because my thing is, you are hurting yourself, like you are serving, you are doing the footwork of the imperialists, of the capitalists. They don't care about you. They're, and so that sort of psychological distortion and, and the, the inability of people to really understand who the real enemy is and uh, is, is a problem that I hope is addressed and people realize very soon. Very briefly, because my work is also, on, I work on Puerto Rico, I'll say that in the Puerto Rican case, what is so interesting is you see, uh, a, a place that has this right, very particular relationship to the US. So the Caribbean as a whole subject right to US imperialism. Um, but Puerto Rico, again, what you're seeing there is the failure of local and colonial, the, the local and colonial states. So I mean, it's much more barefaced. And um, as we all know, the compounded effects of the hurricane, <laughs> the economic crisis, let's not forget that you know, the debt crisis and Obama instating a fiscal board to control all matters, which has led to the defunding of all manner of public services, schools, pensions, all of that, um, uh, the earthquakes, <laughs> the, the pandemic, and then just again, because of the colonial bureaucracy and relationship, the complete mismanagement in terms of people not getting their unemployment checks. If you look at Puerto Rico in relation to the rest of the US, right, in relation to the Caribbean, it's like, a little bit maybe better off than some of the other Caribbean sites, but in relation to the US that it has also a relationship with, it is absolutely the worst place of all 50 states, right? If you include like the highest unemployment rates, the high, right? Um, and, and um, you know, they're not getting their checks. There was like a mailing issue where they were addressed to same and people didn't. So I, I just bring that up to say that it's, it's sort of a, a position um, as both a colonial site of the US um, that is very direct and not as shrouded, um, in addition to its just longstanding history as another Caribbean island that has been exploited with many Black folks who are also trying to fight for recognition within the Puerto Rican community, let alone globally, is also an ongoing issue. So. so we are well over our 30 minutes of time, but um, we just 
want to end with a just with a conversation thinking about what does this all mean in terms of ethics right and so you know I want to ask Sandy like given all that we've discussed what does ethics of Black Lives Matter mean to you in this context I'm still muted. There we go. <laughs> Thank you, Sharice. Yes. Um, you know, and, you know, we were preparing for this and we, we have many conversations about, um, for me, the ethics is, is that kind of, it's an embodied and practical commitment to being with, with the people many times physically. Um, sometimes you cannot be there physically, but showing face. A lot of these uh, far right fascist movements in the DR are, they're cowards, they're trolls. Uh, they don't, they don't, they don't. Um, and I think there's some really incredible work happening throughout communities here and in the DR and in Haiti. Um, so for me, it's very much a practical everyday embodied solidarity. Um, it's about envisioning what's possible. Um, and that it's also about a certain urgency. Again, as I mentioned, um, places like Haiti and the Dominican Republic and other sites throughout the Caribbean are fighting for such a basic level of recognition and material resources. Um, and because they're in these highly repressive states that um, are really at the fulcrum, right, of, um, of capitalist power and interest, the, the like, so the work is just extremely dangerous. So um, really thinking about uh, solidarity um, that shows up in, in very material ways. Um, and uh, yeah, that's how I would answer that. So Sharice, um, given all we've discussed, what does ethics of Black Lives Matter mean to you? Ah, many things. Okay, so first, to quote, you know, a Walter Rodney speech, it's people's power, no dictatorship, right? So the ethical commitment is to the empowerment of people, ordinary people, which means in the context of the United States, for example, not drowning out the voices of people who are struggling on the ground, people who are organizing, engaging in these solidarity economies. And these, you know, these are the people on the front lines. <laughs> These are the people who are putting their lives on the line, as you stated. And so for people like us, for academics, um, we need to hold space for that and really be engaged with that um, and not simply speak on behalf of these movements um, and not simply running our mouths on TV, right? The ethical commitment is to engage the moment, not pimp the moment, not commodify it and not try to make money off of it. And so as so that's one of the, the sort of ethical dimension, dimensions of this moment. Um, but the question of ethics in general is about what do we value and how do we evaluate, right? That is to say, how do we ascribe value to people and to life? Um, and how do we protect and fight for what we value? So I think that we constantly need to keep that front and center that these are people, even, even when we talk about Black Lives Matter, that can be a little bit abstract. Like what we're saying is that these are people, people make movements, people are living, people deserve to live. And so we always need to understand that people are the most important, right? And putting people at the center means that we have to think about how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to each other, and then broadly, how we relate to our communities and to our environment. Um, and you know, Elisa Trotz, um, 
talks a lot about care, right? And so I write elsewhere about mutual comrade, mutual comradeship as an ethics of care. And of course, Ndaye um, recipes is another person who talks a lot about care and a, a, a lot about the work of women in care. And so as we're both struggling to dismantle this society and to think and to envision a new one, we we have to care about each other. And so this means that we have to love black people as much as we hate white supremacy. And I don't necessarily know that we're there yet. Um, and we have to be, the ethical commitment is to be anti-imperialist and to be anti-capitalist and to be anti-racist in the real sense of the word, not in the sense of selling books, <laughs> not in the sense of being hired for diversity training, but in the sense that we cannot get beyond our current moment with all of this racialized antagonism and this racialized violence. Yeah, I know we wanted to circle back and connect it to our scholarship. So Sharice, did you wanna maybe say a few things, uh, words about that? Yeah, so just to end, part of what we wanna do is just a, a, a fast five. We got like a left, well, we can't go beyond an hour. So let's just say 11 minutes. All I wanna, I just simply wanna lift up um, some things that have been fruitful for me in terms of reading, in terms of studying that we that are really sort of insightful for this moment. One book I mentioned earlier, of course, is Margaret Stevens, Red International and Black Caribbean. Um, Adam Gattacho's um, uh, World Making After Empire. Anything by Walter Rodney, the anything by Gerald Horn, of course. Um, the point is to change the world. Um, this the the collected writings of Ndaye, of course. And uh, there's there's so many other people that I could mention and lift up. Uh, Rose Brewer is somebody who I think is very underrated. I think we all need to circle back to uh, Jessica Gordon Nimpard's work on um, what is it, collective courage. That's about Built, uh, the ways in which Black people have engaged in cooperative economies. Um, the work of Percy Henson on elite domination sheds so much light on what's happening in Guyana, in Trinidad, in the, and in Barbados and the Caribbean more broadly. So those are some of the, the works that I would recommend and that I think that we should be engaging in this moment. Um, of course, Claudia Jones, right? Beyond Containment is the collection edited by Carol Boyce Davies. And just simply to remind us of what uh, Walter Rodney says that as black intellectuals, we're enemies of the people until proven otherwise, until we um, convey commitment to what's happening on the ground and challenge the, the distortions and reigning myths in the academy and in society, um, we are abdicating our responsibility and we are part of the problem. So I'll end there. Um, I am. Um... All of those books and texts, I mean, there's just such a, there's so many, I mean, authors that have really contributed to the historical narratives that, hey, Dominicans, we are Black, like we are part of this very important uh, Black legacy in the Americas, despite all of the distortion that has happened that I mentioned earlier. So, um, 
again, I'm just going to have to bring up again uh, Saudi Garcia, who on her personal website created a recent uh, list of, of scholarship kind of coming out after the Trujillo dictatorship, so scholars from the 70s and 80s, but also more recent. I mean, there's so many historians, uh, like as I mentioned earlier, Ann Eller, but people like April Mays, who writes about Black communities in San Pedro. I mean, on and I feel like I'm blanking out, but there's so many scholars in the DR as well that are challenging um, the narrative of, of you know, uh, the, the racist uh, discourses over there. The one that I did um, come prepared to speak a bit more about because I've been reading recently is, is actually the book on the Young Lords by Joanna Fernandez. And the reason I bring that up, a text about mostly Puerto Ricans in New York and Chicago doing this work is that it provides to me such a great model for the role of the diaspora um, in, in a sort of more like doing local work with this anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, and therefore necessarily international angle. It like really models how to advocate for organize around these broad demands, but from a hyper-local level, realizing that those uh, forces of migration are because of all of those things and, and that we, we do have a role to play, even if we've been displaced or our ancestors have been displaced from those places. Um, in terms of my scholarship, something that's very important to me is collectively produced scholarship. Um, in my work on, I write about a radical physician, Marxist physician um, named Ana Lidia Cordero, and the work that she did in Puerto Rico that was uh, in all the right, best senses of the, the words anti-racist, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist. And um, it's been very important for me to constantly be in dialogue with her family members, comrades. We built her archive together and her, her pay personal papers are now archived up at Harvard. Um, and for me also really paying attention to so much important academic and theoretical scholarship happens outside of, it happens actually outside of academia. So supporting um, people who are doing this work, popular education work, as I mentioned, La Galeria magazine, and again, so many other initiatives that I now, I know I'm gonna forget and say, why didn't I mention them? But yes, and obviously so many of the activists in the Dominican Republic, including this beautiful wave of young black women activists who are being very, there was actually a recent decolonial black feminist statement uh, released. Uh, so you should all look that up um, by sisters of, of uh, Haitian descent in the Dominican Republic, so. Yes, yeah, so I forgot to mention three books. One is Bankers and Empire, Peter Hudson, read it. Um, Jamima Pierre, um, The Predicament of Blackness, one of the best exegeses of imperialism in the academy and just in, turn, in, in the world in general, so good. And of course, Kianga Yamada Taylor, um, especially Race for Profit and also just her the work that she does um, also in popular venues that is the more sort of ethical, ethically oriented, um, um, what is it, um, public intellectual work that's happening. So on that note, um, thank you all so much for being here. Um, this hopefully has been an informative discussion and we simply meant to get the, we, this has not been comprehensive in any way. We just wanted to get the ball rolling and to simply note that we need to be looking beyond our own current situation and our, 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 our own um, localities to really understand what's going on in the world. 
so that we can really truly be thinking about what um, is possible and what comes next. Absolutely. Yeah, I just want to give my thanks again. It's so great to be in conversation with you, Sharice, um, because of your ethical commitments and your expertise. So I hope this can be useful to the movement in some way. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Hi, mom. Thank you. <laughs> I know. Shout out to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you.